everyone. Welcome back to the Life Well Done podcast. It's been a hot minute since I've been on here, but I'm super excited about today's uh, guest. Uh, before we get into that, please remember to subscribe, comment, like, share, give me some feedback uh, on iTunes or wherever you're listening to this podcast, as well as hit me up on Instagram at lifewelldone. Uh, today's guest is a doctor of physical therapy. He is a fellow Block One power athlete coach, and he's a Got a resume that is, quite frankly, too long to ever begin listing. Uh, More than his resume, though, he's a human being that connects people with movement and optimizing their lives. So no better fit to bring the podcast back with Dr. Matt Zanis. Hope you guys enjoy. Sweet, dude. So um, tell me a little bit about yourself for listeners. Uh, As I told you, this is the first podcast back in probably about a year. So I'm super pumped to kick it off with you. But Give the the ten thousand foot view of who you are. Oh boy, man, we could spend a couple hours on this just <laughs> in general. Yeah. Well, first of all, I'm honored that I'm the first one back here as a Hell guest yeah. in your podcast. That's pretty fucking cool. Um, so my name is Dr. Matthew Zanis. I am a physical therapist and strength and conditioning coach out here in Phoenix, Arizona. I'm the owner of Rooted in Movement, and Movement is an acronym. So it's M V M N T, and it stands for Movement, Vitality, Mindset, Nutrition, and Training. So uh, everything that we do in life is rooted in movement that kind of serves as the foundation of, of my practice philosophy. But I um, also do a lot of contract work, so working with some high-level military folks and then also with the United States Olympics and traveling around with uh, USA shooting. Um, yeah, so pretty pretty eclectic little background here, but like, I grew up in Northeast Pennsylvania. I know you're in Jersey right now, correct? Yeah, I'm, I'm in Southeast Jersey, so Southeast Jersey, pretty, pretty, pretty close. Yeah. yeah, pretty close. So I grew up in a little town called Pottsville. It's backwoods Pennsylvania, home of Yingling Beer, if you ever heard of it. Yes, one of my favorites. <laughs> exactly. So it should be a, it should be a household staple. So yeah, I've I agree. cases of it out here, even though they don't ship it out west, we kind of hoard it. Um, but I grew up in a pretty predominant baseball family. Uh, dad was a lefty pitcher in college, brother was a righty pitcher, uncle was a catcher. My grandfather was actually drafted by the Pirates back in like the 60s. So I wasn't getting out of that family without playing baseball, <laughs> but here, here's the problem. I wasn't really naturally gifted with it. Like my little brother got all the, the natural genetic athletic gifts. I just, I kind of just sucked. But what, what I did have going for me was I was a really hard worker. So decided that if I could just practice more, you know, throw more, bat more, do everything I could, run more, I would get better. Problem was, I always kept getting injured year after year, and these injuries kept creeping up, old ones, new ones, and then it wasn't until I got into uh, to high school where I discovered strength conditioning. Because you got to understand, I grew up in a time where they thought that lifting weights was actually bad for baseball players. Yeah. Well, you know, now that couldn't be more wrong, but uh, I kind of I kind of fell into this and started to realize that hey, all this this I mean, I'm going to use the word bullshit physical therapy that I went through as a kid that wasn't really effective would have been much more effective had I actually moved better and actually gotten stronger like plain and simple really so it was right then and there that i realized huh i love this stuff like i'm watching the body transform before my eyes and it was in that moment that i really started actually getting into coaching i realized i was a much better provider than a player and a much better coach than an athlete so decided to go into athletic training school at the university of pittsburgh so i took this whole strength conditioning rehabilitation philosophy with me there and then uh, did work for the uh, Pittsburgh Pirates, so got back into baseball as an athletic trainer for a little while, and went down to Duke University for my graduate work in physical therapy. And same thing, it was like, man, I, I used all of this transmission information to fix my own feet, which were pretty terrible. We could dive down that, you know, I'm a big- Yeah, dude, that's, that's on the top of the list but, for me, so. <laughs> but yeah, we, we, can, we can jump into that as well. Uh, but going down there, like, really afforded me the opportunity 
uh, to work with some really switched on people. And the one thing I loved about that is that they were one, a very heavy manual therapy school, which is, is another conversation of irony that we can get back into as well. But uh, I took that opportunity to be able to travel all over the world. So I ended up going out here to Arizona to work with the Cardinals. And I've been here ever since. So fell in love with the area. I've been here now for seven years. And uh, that's when I actually, actually opened up my practice back in 2016. Good for so you. That's I've awesome. Been through a lot. And then that's kind of what uh, gave me the opportunity to, to connect, really, and to be able to travel the world with the Olympics and with the power athlete guys as well as seeing uh, some of these high level military folks. And yes, I am a block one coach as well. Yeah. So I've been through the whole system. And, uh, I was, was going to bring that through the loophole here. Just, yeah, yeah. That's also, that's also a very, very prominent point too, because uh, currently developing a provider course. So with right. these guys, so with uh, Dr. Nick Kyle out of West Virginia and John Luke and Tex, we are building a, we actually have a, a name for it now. It's a process of movement discovery. Uh, program cool. to be able to train other providers, um, PTs, chiros, athletic trainers, strength coaches, to look at movement the way that we do and incorporate strength conditioning into rehabilitation in the right way, in the appropriate way to actually empower athletes and clients to be able to take ownership over their bodies and their movement. Well, that's super cool, dude. Uh, you are, as I kind of told you before we press record on this, like, you're somebody there a couple of years ago went to the first symposium with power athlete. You're up at the front. I'm like, who the hell is this guy? You know, I'm, I'm, I'm like <laughs> fangirling over here and um, just kind of like following you through the system. Like you start to get to know yeah. all these, the block ones. And I finally got my block one. It was like, okay, uh, I feel like I'm the dumbest person in the room. And everybody says like, don't be the smartest. I'm like, well, that's perfect. So I'm the dumbest. This is great. Um, but so many insecurities come up and all these things, but <laughs> Just following you, you're, you're fascinating to me because in I didn't know that movement, MBMT there, uh, had that, it was an acronym really there. So um, that makes a whole lot more sense to part of that connection I've had to with what you produce as far as content and, and trying to learn from you. Um, but it's funny because I, you know, we, we, I didn't get to go to a symposium this year. It's um, some different life, life moves this year, but um just recently got the letter in the mail from text John and Luke about, you know, being a block one. And I, I looked at my wife and I was like, this is, this is the coolest thing in the world being a part of this small group that, you know, like, yeah, we think we know one way, but we're also willing to learn and we're bringing in all these people to test the ways or challenge our beliefs. Right. And like, if you're going to believe something, you better be willing to have a challenge. And if you really do believe it, the challenge isn't any big deal. Um, but it just, you know, every day slacks going off and you're like, you just, if you sit back and really pay attention to what's going on, like you are truly surrounded by people that are trying to make a difference in so many different ways. And, and for you, like, I, I'll just give you the kudos there. Like you, you'd make a huge difference. At least for me, I think about my clients, my athletes, myself, uh, a little bit differently and, and at least try and challenge certain things and maybe have different resources to go look for. So for that, like uh, good for you. And I'm, I'm super excited to see what comes up here, but um, yeah, of course. So I want to dive down a few things before you go into the provider course. I'm sure we'll go. Okay. <laughs> One would be, you're kind of like a suitcase. Uh, you've been traveling with the USA shooting team. Oh yeah. Is that, yeah. is that the proper way to describe it? I don't even know. Yes. Yeah, so okay. <laughs> Yeah, so I'm contracted to the United States Olympic Training Center, which is actually now the US OPC or the Olympic Performance uh, Center. So go up there periodically to work with a bunch of the, the other athletes. Um, most recently, back in January, working with uh, wrestling and gymnastics. And quick little side tangent story, like 
these these athletes are seriously one of a kind up there, especially these female wrestlers, man. <laughs> I tell you what. So I had this one woman. Um, she was like 26, 27 years old, maybe 130 pounds, soaking wet, but just shredded, shredded, absolutely, like so muscular. And uh, she was having some forearm and elbow issues. So me being a movement guy, I'm like, well, I was a wrestler in the past. Like, show me how you're like hand grappling and stuff. We try to see what you're doing, get an idea of, of how we can start attacking this thing. Dude, she grabs my wrist. And I'm like 205 pounds, six foot one guy. I couldn't get that damn thing back. And I'm like, pulled. <laughs> trying to push her off me and I'm like all right i don't know if i'm like emasculated by this or turned on because <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah it was just a, a one of a kind of experience but like yes totally totally blessed and uh i had the opportunity to work with with some of these athletes but um my 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 soul uh, i guess is connected to usa shooting because i'm um, growing up in the backwoods of pennsylvania i was a like a good archery shooter uh, back in the day so I grew up around firearms and, and shooting and all that and shotguns and whatnot. And uh, now I was given the, the, uh, the role as physical physiotherapist and I kind of joke like team mom and psychologist and everything when we go <laughs> on these trips because there's a lot more to it than just, just being there to, to, you know, ease any pain or to help them move better. It's like, well, is that not, that's, and, is it not coaching right there in a nutshell? That's just, yeah, exactly. That's coaching. Whatever your expertise is, you, you yeah. trickle down everything else in some form mm -hmm. and, and, uh, mm -hmm. which is, which is pretty cool. Cause it seems like it, it kind of feeds your mission, uh, at least what comes across your mission anyway. So, yeah. um, yeah. I don't know, man, every, every time I like it's, message you, it's like <laughs> another picture comes up at USA shoot. I'm like, what the hell is this guy doing over here? This is sweet. Yeah. Well, it's like, <laughs> but, we, we just finished up our Olympic trials back actually here in Tucson back in February, but obviously now we are now moving the Olympics to 2021. So I got to wait a little bit bummed, but you know, everything happens for a reason. And there's uh, there's definitely an underlying reason for why this is all occurring the way it is. So just kind of take it in stride and, and go with the flow. But what's interesting about the shooting athletes is that for a very long time, they were not really considered athletes in a sense, which if you think about it, it's kind of like, it's intriguing, right? Because you have to have some really, really great hand-eye coordination, but there's actually a lot of movement going on as far as being able to coordinate stability of the upper body and the trunk and the head and the neck while coordinating movement through the lower body. And one often overlooked area, as we know, is the feet. And nobody had looked at, at, at their feet before. And it's like, wow, it's like a lot of low-hanging fruit. So if I could change the, the movement of these athletes and improve their performance, like, it was just like another kind of feather in my cap type thing. Like, see, I told you I could do it. Yeah. <laughs> Moving forward here because, yeah, nobody wants to take on that role. So. It's interesting you say that uh, how athletic being sh shooting is, the yeah, act of shooting. Uh, I, I mean, other than like kind of goof around as a young kid, like my uncle used to hunt and stuff, but mm -hmm. my, I don't come from a family with a background of weapons or anything like that. You know, right, my right. dad's a musician. Like, I just played sports and I was city boy, so it didn't matter. <laughs> So in the last year, I've gone shooting a couple times, and it was the first time I really shot, like, a real gun. And, you know, first of all, the intimidation of a real gun, you put in your hand, you're like, this, yeah, okay, so I, I, yeah, like, <laughs> yeah. just feeling the weight of it, you're like, son of a bitch, man, this is a real deal. Uh, but, like, when you do actually kind of get into it, like, people were teaching me, you know, like, my wife's in the military, a uh, buddy of mine was in, um, uh, was ATF, so he's mm -hmm. teaching me, like, more combat stuff, you know, like, you know, here's how you're going to hold the stuff, and then it was amazing. You just kind of nailed it. The separation between kind of, you know, different parts of the body from hip to torso, from one side to the other side, like 
there's so much going on and it's all for the most part an isometric hold. So you're trying to find the position you're like, yes. all right, well this whole, the pulling the trigger is going to try and challenge me out of this. Mm-hmm. So how do I resist against that or what part needs to get? It was, um, the first couple of times I shot, I was like, what the fuck is happening here? Dude, uh, it, it's like, a it, it's fun act. though. It's a hundred percent. It really is like a balancing act too, because a lot of these guys start to develop like one side of low back pain or knee issues or shoulder issues. And it's like any other athlete, it all starts with the connect chain. Like you have to figure out where the transmission of force and energy is moving through the body and then where these force leads are, are occurring. So with a lot of them, they're not actually using their feet well enough to um, generate the torque through their hips. So we ended up twisting through the low back and the pelvis or sending it into the knee as well. And it, it's one of those things where if you just took the time to watch somebody move, you could pick up on this stuff um, more from just a technique thing. So like for me, the human body is a, is a puzzle, right? And I'm such a puzzle guy and every single person is unique from so many different contextual areas as far as like their environment they grew up in, their background, um, their past conditioning with their family growing up, like the sports that they played, the movement patterns that they did or didn't do. And then in, in context with the actual sport that they're playing now and kind of how that all builds into the, the motor patterns that they have ingrained in their body versus the ones that they've left to discover. And, and I think that's it's super interesting because you've got to be able to find a, a way to bridge that gap between the two. Interesting. Well, I think that's probably a good jumping off point there then to go into the <laughs> second, uh, for me, the low hanging fruit of the feet. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah, this is probably the rabbit hole that'll keep us on here all night, but uh, <laughs> yeah, careful. Your, a lot of, a lot of your, um, teaching at least over social media, uh, oh. tends to come through the ground up and obviously there's, you just said everybody's individualized. So there's mm-hmm. an opportunity to go from different aspects for everybody, gen pop to athletes, special pop. Okay. But your thing is you generally go from the floor up. So I don't even know where to lead this one other than (laughs) your platform, dude, because as much as I know about very little about these things, like you and okay, yeah, we want to make sure foot's active. What does that really mean? And that would be probably where you would come in and go, you don't even have a clue what you're talking about. So uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So essentially we just, we tend to overlook these areas of the, of, of the bottom of the feet. And it's, it's one of those things where all human movement literally starts from the feet it is the first contact with the ground. So it is, it is generating all these ground reaction forces up the rest of the chain. So to ignore them is, is leaving a lot on the table and you see a lot of issues with like low back pain, hip issues and all that. And we, what we tend to do as coaches and providers is to isolate things, right? We want to look at, look specifically at the back or look specifically at the hip or the knee or try to do like a stretch to it or a mobilization. Yet all these things that we could do on a table or try and isolate mean nothing when the foot hits the ground. Because if you never, if you never reintegrate or assimilate the movement patterns or the dysfunctional movement patterns, we're never going to make a long lasting change with it. And a lot of it comes down to plain and simple is the fact that we have essentially taken away the function of our feet over our lifespan, right? Because our feet are actually meant to be like our hands, super dexterous in nature. There's 26 bones and 33 joints in each foot. That makes 66. That's a lot of freaking joints. And if you put that into consideration with the spine, the spine also has 33 joints. So we're kind of putting two and two together here, but the spine is linear in nature, right? So the movement of one depends on the other, right? But the, the 
feet, their bone, the, the, the surfaces of the bones in each, in each of the feet, they, they contact other bones, right? So they'll, they'll have like one bone contacting two other ones. So they're meant to be super mobile and dexterous and they'll conform to our ground. And what we've ended up doing is trying to limit motion there for a number of reasons. Uh, number one, we keep our feet in shoe coffins all day long, right? So the, the feet cannot, they don't have the opportunity to spread out. And I'm gonna kind of give you like a little bit of a, a rule here with this is that muscles are really stupid in nature. They really are. Because from the standpoint of a muscular contraction, it's totally dependent on what position that the joint is in. So if you think about it this way, we have four different layers of muscles in the feet from the bottom up and also the big long muscles that come down from the lower shin bone and everything. And they all um, integrate and connect into the bottom of the foot. And the metatarsals, so the long bones of the toes, they're squished together all day long in shoes. Those muscles are completely shortened. Right, so they're, the fibers, the cross bridges are like completely contracted, and muscles do not like to function well from there. Right, so what we see is that the feet then start to end up working more like pegs in nature, and then this is what shifts people a lot into the into the heel. Which, God, it just kills me because I mean, you as a coach, I'm probably sure that you heard this a number of times. It's like everybody trying to coach somebody to get back into their heels or to drive to their heels to try and engage the posterior chain which is asinine to me because there is literally nothing back there but a fat pad and a bone. That's, it's a, uh, I've followed power athlete for, you know, cross of football days. Right. So mm -hmm. a lot of the things, a lot of times I've heard, I'm like, I don't know. I mean, I get it right. The knees out cue. Okay. We, I've, you and I have exchanged messages about yeah. this. Cause when you yeah. said something, I was like, well, hold on. This has been a different understanding for me. Whereas like to me, knees out. Um, when I, if I was coaching a, a, a class, that would be in an emergency only because I'm not mm -hmm. teaching you anything there. What I'm teaching you is to drive your knee out. That doesn't teach you anything about what your foot should be doing yeah. or what the hip should be doing. And so are we really connected anymore? Now, if I've got some kind of beginner, which hopefully they're not even in this position anyways, different story there. But like if, they, you know, if they've got a major valgus force, well, instead of letting them get the hurt, let's pull them out so they can be, I guess, a little bit more structurally sound. Mm -hmm. But the more we've, you know, I've learned and kind of followed you and, and everybody, we're talking about big toe being making foot active. And obviously we're trying to keep most times the heel on the ground. But when we transition a little bit more into that athletic mindset, right. now we're seeing all this active foot, not necessarily meaning just toe down, but right, literally right. meaning the heel off the ground. And mm -hmm. it makes, it makes sense when you're looking at how a sport's played, because very rarely do you have your full foot in contact with floor you know exactly. in motion at least so uh it makes a lot of sense um just watching it understanding the mechanism behind it i guess now i'm starting to understand a little better with your explanation yeah. there yeah, um, essentially because what happens is we start to demonize these movements that we're seeing right so we see somebody's knee cave in or we, we see somebody quote unquote over pronate and right. for whatever reason we had this dogmatic understanding that that is somewhat bad which, yeah, of course, it can be in the wrong sure. standpoint, like you can't control it. But instead of just demonizing and trying to isolate and stabilize and protect and immobilize, we should seek more to understand things and then learn how to control and strengthen them. So going back down to the foot, if you cannot control your pronation, meaning you can't control the collapsing of the arch, yes, your knee will cave in and under a specific amount of load, like a non-contact ACL injury can occur. Right, from in the internal rotation and that dongus force, we know that that is, that is the mechanism for an ACL tear. 
However, we should also not be trying to, like you just mentioned, cueing people to drive their knees out all the time because that's just teaching you to activate the posterior chain. And what you typically see, or sorry, the lateral chain, and what you typically see is people just kind of wholesale falling out at the outside lateral edge of their foot. So then we see the whole entire big toe come up. And it's like, well, we, we can't, like, we try to get everybody in this one specific pattern. The problem is that every human body is built differently. So you can't put people into silos, right? So the great example I give all the time is like, I'm 6'1", I've literally got no torso, I'm all limbs, I'm all, I've got a 6'5 wingspan, all femurs. So for me to squat ass to grass, I am much more comfortable with a little bit of a wider stance and a little bit of a toe out. It doesn't mean that my, my big toes come up off the ground, I know how to control the tripod of my foot, but for me to clear my hip out from the bony anatomy standpoint, I have to do that. Right, versus my girlfriend who is 5'10", also all limbs, but her hips are a lot shallower than mine. So she can get away with having her legs in closer and like in that chair pose for yoga can squat all the way down to ask the grass with it. So you kind of have to, you have to take these, these anatomical variances um, into account as well with all this. And then go, can, 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 can I go jump into one more thing here? Perfect. Keep taking um, away, man. And, and it has to do with the concept of orthotics for the shoes because I really want to kind of, it feels like beating a dead horse for me, but I really want to get this out there now is that we got to stop using these orthotics, right? Because all that's doing is it's blocking pronation. And we, like we just talked about, we need to control pronation. We need to accept it, right? We need to be able to go through this excursion of pronation and supination that's super, super important in, in the context of things like sprinting and squatting, you know, just moving in general. Right. Because in order to get your posterior chain on, so your hip rotators and your glutes and your hamstrings, you need to be able to pronate to allow the foot to come into pronation, which puts the supinators on enough of a stretch to react. Remember, muscles are stupid, right? So we need to put them on as much of a stretch, then we can react to resupinate, which is then gonna take our femur, which is now in this sense of internal rotation, to be able to react once again and contract into external rotation and extension. We don't do that. Now you have somebody stuck in, we can't pronate. So from a squatting standpoint is now we're stuck in supination the whole entire way down. And this is where you see people get super limited in their squat mobility patterns is because they'll get stuck at like 90 degrees or just below because they literally can't go anymore. Their brain won't let them. It's a protective mechanism. Okay, so, so, so these these orthotics in a sense are almost like an immobilizer after a knee surgery in a way. A hundred percent, and we wear them all day long. And I could say this because I used to wear them too. Yeah. Right? I was there. I, I've been through it. And like my whole story with the feet is, I was a catcher for a very long time. I was in cleats, so I was only squatted on my heels and my, or sorry, on my toes, but my foot was like super squished together from being in cleats my whole life, and my feet were painful. And my parents didn't know any better. So they put me in all these big expensive orthotics and cushiony shoes, which would help temporarily, but then just seemed to make things worse over time. So it was, was in PT school, I realized, hey, the foot's like any other part of the body, you could still strengthen it and make it better. And actually now I get compliments on how muscular my feet look, which is I never thought I'd get so excited about it, but I am like looking at them right now. I'm like, yeah, they're sexy. Um, Jack. Yeah, they're jacked feet. And, uh, so it was one of those things where like, yeah, you can strengthen them, you can correct them. So it took me three years, but I went from a size 12 and a half to a 10 and a half shoe. So I was able to bring my arch up and actually make my foot functional again. Wow. That's super important. And I have people do that in their 60s and their 70s as well. 
So you're never too old, just be willing to put in the work. That's all. All right. So I guess then that kind of comes down to the, yeah, that is, that's nuts. This is size and indifference there is pretty crazy. Um, so you, you have an athlete or anybody come in and just pretending that scenario puts you the, the ground up. What assessments do you go through to look for that? Or as a coach, in my case, what should I be really looking for in these scenarios to, for me, have the low-hanging fruit be corrected versus someone like you where you got like this, you know, Einstein book in your head going on? <laughs> yeah, so there are some really simple things that I, what I do with everybody, okay? And this is something any coach can do. You, one, ask permission first to have your <laughs> athlete or client take their shoes and socks off, especially in now's society and, and day and time because of everything going on uh, but have them take their shoes and socks off and then it may get a little weird right now because you're going to ask them to close their eyes so <laughs> you're not giving them any coaching instruction at this point you're just having them stand normally shoes and socks off however they normally are going to want to stand and you ask them to bring awareness down to their feet and in doing so you're asking them to kind of discover where that they feel foot pressure where they actually have pressures in the bottom of their feet. This is going to give you a lot of insight into how these forces now are being transmitted up the chain. So what I like to have people do is like, do you feel more in the right foot versus the left foot? Do you feel more in the right heel versus the right forefoot, left heel versus left forefoot? And then how about that inside edge versus outside edge in each foot? And that's going to give you an idea of how that person's standing on a daily basis, but then also what the, the position is going to look like going up the chain. So for example, if somebody has a lot more weight in the heels, we know that, that your, your brain, your body is going, your brain's gonna try and um, compensate. It's always gonna try and balance you out, right? Find homeostasis. So what it's gonna do is tilt the pelvis forward. So you see the anterior pelvic tilt? How many times do you try to cue somebody out of that? But we never actually told them, like asked them where the pressure was and all of a sudden they're still having all this weight in their heel. Like you're telling them to squeeze their ass more to tilt their pelvis back. Uh, your, your initial thing is to go right. towards the hip flexor. Initially, always. Oh, we got tight hip flexors. No, <laughs> you just, you just got to put weight in your forefoot, dude. Like, it, it's really, it comes down to being that simple. But then, like, if you have one, if you have weight in, like, one more, more one foot than the other, for example, let's just say we have more weight in the left side. And you could actually see and um, uh, corroborate this with a really simple assessment of, you take your, uh, you probably can't see this so well, but you take your two fingers on each hand and you drive underneath the ankle bones. So now you have your pointer finger and your middle finger on either side of the ankle and that web space between your fingers will actually give you a little of an arrow of where the talus is lined up. So the talus is this bone that sits on top of the heel in between the two ankle bones. And trivia, fun fact for you, it's called a dumb bone because it's the only bone the body doesn't have a muscle attached to it. But wow. it dictates a lot of the kinetic forces going up there, right? So what we see with people, and this is where I get really irritated with research and literature because people take it for like face value and don't actually read into it and try to understand it. So they say normative values for this talus to be rotated is anywhere from zero to 16 degrees. Well, I call six, bullshit. 16 is in one six? 16, one six. Okay. Well, I call bullshit on this because what happens if you have a talus bone that is facing straight ahead lined up over the first and second toe at zero degrees of canting or rotation, yet on the other side, you have it rotated 16 degrees. Both within normative values, but you got one that's offset more than the other. And what we typically see is we'll have one that's rotated inward and down towards the floor, which gives you this sensation of an overpronated foot. I'm using air quotes here, an overpronated <laughs> foot. But that makes a huge difference up the chain. So let's just say that that left 
talus is rotated towards the floor more than the right, they're typically going to feel more pressure on the right side. Because what that's doing is it's shifting the pelvis to the right. All right, so now we're creating a lot more compression on the right side and SI joint. So this is where you typically see some one-sided low back pain. But then, and more importantly, it changes up the hip orientation. So the right so pelvis. I'm going to pause you for a second. Yeah, so if I just understood. I want to make sure I don't have this backwards. So if I have, in that scenario that you just drew up, if I have a right uh, right talus uh, pronation or pronation of the right foot, mm -hmm. I would upstream likely have a right side um, um, SI issue. Well, the, the there's uh, a cross crossover yeah so the example i was using was an overpronated left foot just to kind of okay keep all right that's everybody that's on track but yeah got it yeah okay yeah so right. if you have a, a more tilted talus on that left side it's going to push weight over to the right side of the okay. body that, they're, that they're probably going to feel pressure on the right side but that's going to rotate the pelvis right on that right side which can give you that compression at the that side area so people are going to see one side of low back pain that's typically how that develops but more importantly is what's going on at the hips so now if your pelvis is rotated back to the right on that right side, we now have a more relatively internally rotated right hip and a more relatively externally rotated left hip. Like this shit matters. I think that's exactly what I have going on for me right now. <laughs> <laughs> I had the issue too, but mine was on the right side. So the example that you were going down. Huh. Um, yeah, yeah. So you can see how this starts to change the forces that are now going on up the connect chain. And you ever see somebody squatting and shift their pelvis one way or another? Yeah, quite often. Yeah, it's starting with the feet. Yet, how many times we have the person take the shoe off, right? You know what I mean? Like we, we don't we don't ever go down that route. At all. Right. Well, and, and a lot of it has to do with education that like there should be no pronation, there should be this and that, and you're like, okay, uh, should be right. right. Well, yeah, and then I don't know what one of the other thing you just mentioned about like research for like some people are like so ingrained in the research, which I can appreciate. Like I'm not trying to go against science, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but at the same time, like there's so like you can find a research paper to kind of contribute to whatever you want to really think about. And then there's exactly. an interpretation. So like, it's not to say like, is it a hundred percent? No, it's kind of like life where it's like, I don't know. It says this it's probably somewhere in the middle. Right, yeah. The majority right, right. of research suggests this. So in, interesting. Uh, it's, it's interesting. You're talking about that though, because if I'm following it properly, I feel like for years I played hockey. I was, I'm a, I'm a mm. right-hander. I'm dominant right hand. Right. But I swing baseball, golf, uh, you know, golf club, hockey, mm -hmm. all of that left-handed. So my right hand's my dominant hand still on the top. So then I start getting a little bit of like um, um, a lateral pelvic tilt to my left yep. hip. But in the last, you know, ever since following PA over the last, I don't know, let's call it eight years or so, I've continually pulled and one time tore my right hamstring. <laughs> I continues, continue to have uh, right low back pain that subsided in the last year. I continue to have, I guess what I would describe as right hamstring tendinopathy. So real, yep. real high up in the issue. Um, and then like when I squat one, my, I can't even remember which one, one quad is definitely bigger than the other. And mm -hmm. I shift over to my right leg. So <laughs> you're describing <laughs> this. Like, going. Dude, so do you see how this works? Like this is okay. This, here's the irony story I was talking about earlier is that I went to Duke because they had a great manual therapy program. So I went and did an orthopedic residency after PT school and then went into a manual therapy fellowship program. So I spent tens of thousands of dollars in, in postdoctoral work to be very good with my hands. <laughs> Ask me how much I use my hands. Yeah. yeah. Probably 10% of the time. And it's, <laughs> it, it's one of those things though where, yes, there is, a, there is definitely a window for it, right? 
there's some usefulness to it because they're like having to manipulate something or mobilize something or like the human, the human body and the brain responds so well to touch. If it is like a use stress, like a, like a, a nice novel stress into the system that the, the brain likes. But what that does is open up a window of opportunity to help you move better. Problem is we don't ever look at movement and figure out why they're not moving well to begin with. You're never going to change anything. Well, and, and everything there is like rooted in, in nervous system. Right. So like it whether it's system. touch or it's your own, like all those things that, that matter. Yeah. So it is, it is funny how that works. So where you go invest all that money and you're like, son of a bitch, man. But yeah, that man. had to be done because you, you understand the body at a different level. To I, be wouldn't, to I wouldn't be out. where I'm at now without it. Oh, yeah. Like, it's so it's, so like, selfishly, I'm going to ask you this question yeah. too, based on all of that stuff you just said. And I went through all my issues. Now I've had both shoulders surgically repaired. Uh, I've been diagnosed with yet another right labral tear. Um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But it's funny because I feel like I have way more control over my right side. So remember all the right side issues. I'm leaning right. right. That right side scap wings way more. I've get a, got a lot of lat issues. I get a lot of anterior, you know, maybe rotator cuff like tendonitis type uh, issues. Um, and now I've got the second tear in that side. But I feel like I have far more control over the right side. I would almost call it like hypermobile in terms of control mm. versus my left side where I can't, I can't feel into my left scap being, you know, retracted or anything like that. Um, but I, my right side, tell me I didn't do anything. I got it. But every time that I get injured, it's the right side. Like I just pressing overhead the other day. I'm pressing and it's right down the right side. I pull or, you know, mm -hmm. I don't know what the hell I did, but. Uh, and it continues to be the continues to be the right side, but I feel like I have the most um, I don't know the word I guess connection men okay. mentally mind connection to the right side ability to contract or move or feel into these movements. Mm -hmm. So you're saying all these things from the feet and all of it's consistent. <laughs> and now my question is, how does that go farther upstream into okay, the shoulder girdle? Yeah. And does that yeah. make how much of an impact does that matter? Because I'm sure it makes some impact. It sure does. So let's let's go back to our, our original example of the left talus being rotated more, pushing weight over the right side, rotating the pelvis right. Sure. What that's going to do is if you if you think about what the body's trying to do, it's always trying to find balance, right? So if the pelvis is going to be rotated right, my rib cage now, my trunk is going to have to rotate back left. Yeah to try and balance ourselves out. But now, this is where we start to create different length tension relationships and muscles that attach from the thoracic spine into the shoulder blade, right? So we know that, exactly, right? So with the shoulder blade, is, it's very interesting. It only has one strut, like one attachment into your axial skeleton called your collarbone, right. your sternum. Everything else is dictated by the position of the rib cage, sort of breathing, and your control of your, your periscapular muscles, your scapulothoracic muscles, okay? So what you're telling me, and actually this, this spiraling action then actually goes up into the neck as well. So the trunk rotates left, the head's gonna rotate right. And we usually see some, some issues going on at the right side. Um, but what you're telling me is that you have some right side issues that you feel like you have more control over it. So perception's reality, right? If you're, if you're noticing that it's winging, you've got good control in specific patterns, not others. So what that tells me is that you're, you have some limited control overhead. Yes. With, exactly. <laughs> That's going to be a connection. So think about the right side. If the right shoulder lifts up overhead, you have to get rotation of that left rib cage for that to happen. Okay. okay. So how this starts to play into it. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, it's a motor control problem. Your brain 
doesn't have a sense of stability and control over that area. So what happens from a nervous system standpoint is if the brain feels like it doesn't have control, it's going to do one of two things. It's either going to either send out those pain signals or some type of signal to get you to change the movement pattern to stop doing what you're doing, or it's going to neurologically tighten things down to where you feel like you're limited because it's a protective mechanism. Your brain's not going to let you go into ranges of motion that it feels like it can't control. So what it's telling me with your right side is that you have really strong, powerful prime movers, meaning delts, probably biceps, triceps. Yet we, so you can get the weight up overhead, but once we get up there, your brain doesn't know how to do anything with it. So what it's doing is it's trying to use those prime movers of your, your delts, your biceps, your pec probably as well, and upper traps to try and, so you're trying to use these prime movers as power producers, but then also as stabilizers because we're lacking the control underneath here at the scapular muscles like lat, low trap, rhomboids to coordinate together to give you a stable foundational pillar to press off of. So you're just smoking the same tissues over and over and over again. And every tissue has a tolerance for load until you reach that threshold. And then there's an inflection point. Your brain's like, okay, time to knock the fuck off already. Yeah. We got it. You got to do something differently. Yep. What do most people do? I'm good. I'm, it's my right side. It, it's my strong side. So I'm going to yeah. keep moving with it, right? Burn and, the house down, baby. Because you can't. <laughs> until you can't anymore. So right. This is a good opportunity to explain how all this stuff kind of occurs. So typically what happens in an injury or painful state, it all starts with some type of a trauma, right? So the trauma can be physical in nature. It can be emotional. It can be psychological, spiritual. doesn't matter. Right? There's a source of trauma. That trauma then leads into dysfunction. Right, so we start moving in a different way. Well, your brain's not stupid. It's going to try and figure out ways to get around that because your brain has a map of every single part of your body. Except the problem is most people don't have access to all those areas of the map. We have these road blockages, closures, so then your brain now has to work around them. These are called your compensation patterns. So you got trauma leads to dysfunction. The dysfunction leads into compensation patterns, and then these compensation patterns then lead into accelerated tissue damage because. You're constantly overloading the same structures over and over and over again. So then one of two things occurs. You either A, injure yourself, or B, start to develop new compensation patterns to circumvent the old ones that your brain can't tolerate anymore. So then you see this cycle that occurs. So you never go back to the original traumatic event. And for some people, it is psychological in nature. And that's why like we were joking in the beginning about being kind of the team mom and the psychologist, but it's so true. And that's a huge part of the component of this course that we're developing with power athletes is um, process of movement discovery. It all starts with communication. It's like 80% oh, of what you do, right? Because you have to be able to talk to somebody and figure out where, what is the root cause of where all this is coming from. And we can't have some um, past traumatic events that represent and manifest as a physical pain or a physical dysfunction. And this is fascinating. And you, only, I, and you only get there by developing trust and rapport and connection with the person in front of you. That's fascinating. I don't, I don't know if it was you, if, if I wrote it down after you said like being team mom type thing, yeah. but I literally wrote down like anxiety, psychological factors in relation mm. to injuries. Mm. And that comes up for me because um, not that I recommend anybody listening to this, go back to episode one, because this, the, the podcast has gone through <laughs> several changes here and we've turned so into more human optimization, but it started off as mental health. And that's something that yeah. I've really struggled with. Uh, I've been open about a lot of my, my struggles and head injuries and all these other things. Um, 
but I, I was, you mentioned it, you were always a kid growing up getting hurt. And my yeah. question to you, I wanted to know for you, but also for me, I, as I get older and I start doing, you know, a little bit deeper work for myself, I start to understand that, oh, these things when I was younger was what we would call today anxiety, depression, or, you know, mm -hmm. insecure, all these things that come up psychologically and how much aside from, you know, eating peanut butter and jelly all day, you know, ice cream, whatever it is, yeah, yeah. how much does a psychological aspect come into why I continually got injured over and over again? And how do you kind of maneuver that in terms of playing into your physical therapy? Obviously everybody hears physical therapy. Everybody hears personal trainer and no one thinks mindset. No one thinks about emotional distress or what's going on there. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, or fortunately, that's part of our, our chosen career. It, it's yeah. just, I think it's part of everybody's and people just ignore it, but you take that on. I try to take that on because I think it's important. But my question is, obviously you've had that background for yourself. Mm -hmm. and what have you done or what do you do with these athletes to kind of open that up and relate it to them? So I'm going to use myself as an example for this because I've talked about this before on uh, with, with multiple people and it's just, it's part of me. It's part of my story. So uh, something that's easy for me to, disclose and, and not feel any shame and guilt for it anymore but I'm, I'm an oldest child right and with that comes the responsibility of you feel like you need to take care of everybody and you need to be able to please your parents and because you're the responsible one and you're the oldest one and you need to be the strongest and the smartest and, and that's what it turned into me I was a, I was a people pleaser right so I never really looked to myself and really owned who I was my purpose my values in life for a really long time and I just sought to try and please everybody else's expectations of me including from an athletic standpoint, I was young, like all I ever wanted to do was make my dad proud of me. Right. Like it, it comes back to that. And I would do anything at any cost to be able to make that happen because he was such a good baseball player. Maybe that wasn't really my sport. I was actually so much better at soccer of all things. Um, but of course you gave that up because yeah. why would you? Right. But it was, it was just trying to please him and, and make sure that he was proud of me. So I would do anything that it took, including practicing and playing more despite all this pain. But what ends up happening is you start to develop these things like anxiety and fear of the unknown. And what that does to the brain and the body is it puts you in a very sympathetic state. So the sympathetic state is kind of this fight or flight response, right? And in today's society, we're all kind of hard go-getters go and we don't really take the time to actually relax and look inward and introspect on things. And this sympathetic state actually does lead into um, movement dysfunction as well. It changes patterns. It puts you into a guarded nature. Like if you're feeling like really tight and everything, yeah, that's a protective mechanism. Yet we don't ever think about that. And that's that's why we've included a whole entire module in this course on breathing. Because so cool. one, how to assess the breathing, but then two, actually how to use it as a tool to put you into this parasympathetic state. But we can't even begin to go there unless we start to actually communicate well with that person in front of us and ask the right questions. So one of the things that we do is we, we take listening for granted, I think. I think because we communicate day in and day out, we're using words day in and day out that we think that we're good at it. But what we, we find out is that we're not actually truly listening to the person in front of us. We're too busy trying to come up with our next question or our next phrase that we're going to say or if we're in the re rehab realm, the next movement, the exercise that we think we're going to do. But I spend 90 minutes with people that I should you not. The first hour is usually just spent talking. And then the rest of the movement stuff kind of comes afterwards because you need to be able to connect with them. 
like on a, on a very deep level too, so that they trust you. But like it's listening and it's being able to reframe words that they're saying, repeat them back to them and formulate into other questions. And when you do that, that person brain, that person's brain triggers and said, oh yeah, he's listening. He's used words that I've said and he truly cares. Like intuitively people pick up on that. If you really don't give a shit about the person in front of you. They're going to know. Yeah, they know. Yeah, we're human beings. We know this, right? But then one of the biggest, biggest questions that you could ask somebody when you're working with them is, do I have permission? So do I have permission to ask you this question? Do I have permission to give you information that I know from my end? Do I have permission to educate you? Do I have permission to go deeper? And with that, the person is acknowledging you and they're opening themselves up. So when they open themselves up, they're going to be much more calm and confident, feel safe to be able to tell you their story. And that's why I always open up with that question. Tell me your story. I want to know anything. Like, where, where do I begin? Wherever you want to begin. What's resonating with you right now? Because at the end of the day, when clients come to us, it doesn't matter if it's for rehabilitating from pain or an injury or trying to move better, or even in the gym with strength and conditioning, they're not looking for a solution to a problem. They're looking for support. And if we can support them in that manner, we're going to be able to go leagues above and beyond what anybody else can do with them. Well, it's, uh, man, there's so much in there that, I need to take a second to breathe that one out. That's uh, you just hit so many different like positive nerves in there. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously one of the first things you said where we, we, we don't listen very well. As you were saying that I was in my head going, what's next? I'm trying to listen to what you're saying, but I'm also right. thinking like, what's the next thing I need to say or ask him? Cause I'm curious about my own things, but also you're jogging my, you're putting my brain down a whole different path. Right. right. But then, you know, you called me out and I was like, all right. And everything I needed was right there when I needed mm-hmm. it. Right. So which it, it's more of a fear of like, all these things are going to leave. If I don't ask right away, the other side of it is we don't listen to others. We don't listen to ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and for whatever, you know, there's probably a whole other rabbit hole we could go down um, as to why, but not listening to ourselves, I think puts us in that. Why am I not listening or why am I listening to, to answer what, what Dr. Matt's saying to me right now yeah. versus why can't I just take this in and go, hold on, I need to process that. There's nothing wrong with that. Nothing at all. The other side of it is like when you, when you do, even from, you know, the strength conditioning, personal training, whatever it is, regardless of who your client is, it's not about your squat. It's not about your bench press. It's Mm-mm. it. And I had, I got fired by a girl one time that she told me, <laughs> this is, this is my favorite thing ever. Uh, yeah. She told me that I was too much about feelings during our sessions. Now I won't go down the rabbit hole of what all the problems would have been Mm -hmm. from my end to her. I'm the first person to say like, I'm imperfect. I don't, you know, I want feedback as much as I don't, I don't want the feedback. Right. But like, I need it. Um, And it was funny because when she fired me, it was the text the day before I got a text of thanks for calling me out on my BS, like blah, blah, I love you. You're great at what you do. Great. Cool. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Oh yeah. And let's keep it going. The next day, was you're too harsh, you're too this, blah, blah, blah. I don't want to work with you anymore. All right. So I still randomly get these text messages, which I appreciate. And, I, you know, it's like being a coach of a hockey team. I may get you to the playoffs, but I may not be the one that makes you win the Stanley Cup. Mm-hmm. But, you know, here's the progress of here's how we all move forward. I learn things and move on, go on, fine, great. But I still get these text messages about I quit my job, I moved on, I feel so much better, I appreciate everything you ever did for me. And I just always laugh because the one thing that sticks in my mind is that you're too much about feelings. And what's the connection there? Allowing people to feel for themselves, to direct questions, to mm-hmm. feel about themselves, 
but most importantly to feel comfortable about feeling all these things and to be able to put it out there with you. And that to me is like, why, you know, I've talked about this before we recorded, why I want to go down the more of the sport performance psychology route, because the therapy side of it, I love that stuff. I, I just love learning and, and listening to people. And, you know, I, I'd sit here and listen to you. How'd you get here? How did you get to this confident level? Mm-hmm. How did you get to this? I don't know. Just tell me how you got there. It's fascinating to me. But more than anything, like everybody at all walks of life have these things going on. It doesn't matter if you're, you know, in my case, Sidney Crosby or you're in Pittsburgh, you know, or, you know, you got your, <laughs> okay, you're like, you could use that. Now. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's tough. I'm a Red Wings fan. So that's tough cookies <laughs> for me. Uh, but you know, like the LeBron James, they yeah. all have something and whether it's like to get better at your sport or your career or anything, or just feel better in general, these things are just so crucial to everything that we do specifically in our arena. And obviously when you tout the role of doctor, they, it, they think that they're coming to you for physical therapy. Mm. And that's what makes someone like when people are like, Oh, I go to a physical therapist. Like who you go to matters because if you can, like, I would recommend you, I recommend very few people. Cause I'm like, it's not about, they're going to come up with some crazy treatment mm-hmm. for you. That's like, mm-hmm. Oh my God, nobody's doing this. Yeah. I don't know. I'm just saying, so he's doing some great stuff that most mm-hmm. people I know aren't doing that, but just go on Instagram. Also gonna, gonna, Right. Right. But like at the end of the day, it's going to be more about like, it make you feel like a person. They're going to listen to you. They're going to help you get to where you need to go. Not just by fixing your knee, but by helping you understand why your knee is and what it is, where we need to go and how we are going to get there. And to me, that's, that's fascinating. Like this this, I'm dude, I'm lit up right now. This is amazing. Um, yeah. uh, I was going to say like, uh, whether it it doesn't matter, like if if you're in this profession, and you're interacting with humans, if you're, if you're doing any type of coaching, right, you are, it is your responsibility to be a space holder, right? You need to be able to hold space and have that feel, person feel open enough to talk to you. If you continually shut it down, you can't hold space for somebody. You have no business being in this profession because in doing so, any interaction and experience that you have with somebody, it's creating a container. Like you have to be able to create a container and that container is going to allow for the change to occur. You got no container from your communication, your movement assessment. It doesn't matter. You can't go anywhere with it. It's impossible. Uh, dude, I love it. It's uh, it's spot on too. Like I just put myself in a whole bunch of different situations right there where, with clients, like you like it again. They're like, "Why are we doing this? Mm-hmm. We could be doing anything." You know, that's I always tell clients. I'm like, "Listen, I've got my philosophy on how I want to do things, mm-hmm. and like it's very basic. It's simple." It, power athlete, right? Kind of directs my philosophy sure, and I sure, reach sure. Out to whatever the individual clients. But at the end of the day, I always tell them like, listen, if you hate what we're doing, speak up because I'll figure out a way to get what I want out of what you, we need to do and still get you what you want to do, but also explain why we're doing X, Y, and Z. Mm-hmm. But most importantly, if you feel comfortable to speak up about that, that means I've, the way you phrase it, I've got a space here for us where you mm-hmm. feel comfortable mm-hmm. to say anything. Exactly. And so it doesn't matter. Oh, we're going to trap bar deadlift. Why are we doing this versus bar, uh, straight bar? Honestly, because the barbell was right there. Yeah, it doesn't <laughs> you know? matter. It really you know, like it, it, we're still hinging. We're still just make sure you move well. But at the end of the day, I'm having a conversation between sets with you about how you, you hate your job or you're overeating at night or, you know, whatever it might be. So, uh, and, and then you get into the whys of that. So that's, that's really, um, damn, dude. 
I feel like I could talk to you all day long with this stuff. This is crazy. Um, <laughs> hey, I do have some more. <laughs> yeah, dude, I have I have a couple things. I'll try yeah, and yeah. keep it here. We'll we'll just all do a follow up podcast. Sure. Um, I want you to finish up going kind of a little bit more in depth about what this course is for selfish reasons. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But before you do that, um, I kind of had the I you know we we're talking about compensation patterns, and so yes. for me, like I blame hockey a lot for a lot of my compensation patterns. Right. So top, I was left-handed so dropping the left shoulder and whether that was it or my, it was my talus going down whatever it was I know I've got compensation issues mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. now obviously I've let that go for 30 years now so we're you know we're in a good spot um but the other side is like I come out of a hockey season do you what does your off season look like with your athletes maybe we use shooting as an example where mm-hmm. they've obviously at some point developed some kind of compensation pattern if they're shooting the you know gun up on a right shoulder Yep, yep. something's going to get statically put into a place where we don't want it at this point mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. to be able to get safely into a strength conditioning protocol as an off season protocol. What do you, what do you look at for that? Or even for just general populations that we all go in some kind of cycle. Yeah, we all do. I think that those are, are, aren't mutually exclusive at all. I mean, here's the thing with these really high level athletes, they're prepping for a very specific competition or they have like a very specific season um, for the Olympic athletes. And this is something that is happening right now in this present moment is that all these athletes, all they are doing all this work and prepping themselves for this one specific date and time. Just what, guess what just happened? Take it away. What do you do now? Right? So now we got to be able to, okay, we got to ramp you back down, plateau you out. And what that's going to look like is different for everybody. Um, but then once we get a date, then we can start to periodize you and build you and ramp you back up to peak, right? So here's the thing. You, when it comes to competition and it comes to game day or even like within that in-season training program, you, you can't change much because the brain and the body are already working to the best of their abilities that, that they can with the information and tools that they have in that moment. And if you go and try and change things, there's going to be a disconnect and that's going to lead to a decrease in performance. So it's that off season time period where we can start to dive deep into looking at these movement compensation patterns and start to build a training program to help them move out of it. Right. And with that though, they still have to keep practicing the skill. Right. So with the shooting athlete, like their, their skill and their pattern is very ingrained and it's got to be that way because they're trying to shoot targets and moving at 65 miles an hour away from them or across the field and have to get it, get the shots off in their two seconds. So you can't mess a lot with that. But if, if we say, okay, you're getting all this shoulder pain, you're getting all this hip and low back pain, let's change something about the, up the way that you're moving and start to essentially stress to progress. Right be able to make these um, movement patterns a little bit more solidified in nature while you're practicing your skill. And then the body will start to adapt to both of them together. Rather than staying stuck in that compensation pattern, keep trying to work around it. We can use an off season time period. And I'll be honest with you, we just need like 10 to 12 weeks for that to happen because we'll get actually what's called neuromuscular efficiency start to uh, ingrained within about two to three weeks when the nervous system is just sending more and more units and uh, neural pathways into those movement patterns. But then the solidified you need around that 10 to 12 week uh, time period, we start to make some structural changes occur. But for the everyday person, it just comes down to what are you training for, right? right. So like, it's, it's tough because everybody wants everything at the same time. Yeah. 
And human body doesn't look like that. Like I really I come to terms with my own training as well to be able to take a step back and like look at it from a 10,000 foot view and be like, what do I want right now? And I got to devote the time and energy to fix my shit and be able to make myself a better mover before I start adding load or speed or anything onto the, or strength onto those dysfunctional movement patterns. You can, like, just like you can't go for endurance and strength at the same time and power at the same time and hurt right. at the same time. Same thing comes down to these, to these movement patterns as well. And here's the problem. We've been so ingrained into all this performance stuff that we haven't developed a foundational level of being a good human mover first. Truly. Right? It's, yeah, it's, uh, I'm at this crossroads right now, which is, um, I guess it's serendipitous that I'm speaking to you right now. Cause like this whole Corona thing has almost been for a lot of reasons, terrible, but for a lot of reasons, I'm like, I actually stopped working out here for a little bit to let some things just kind of come down. I've gone running a little bit. And although that's not the answer, I found other ways to just kind of move. And I'm also not like sitting there anxious about like, Oh, I'm getting fat or I'm not going to be able to lift 400 pounds and like I've taken steps down and taken weight down, yep. but I always plateau at the same areas and mm-hmm. I'm still at this plateau. Mm-hmm. And now I'm sitting here going, did you know your body image issues are more related to your food than they are with, yeah, with, yeah, too. can you squat oh, yeah. 7,000 pounds or you can venture, you do 55 pull-ups. The right. reality is you couldn't possibly get to those numbers whether I've named realistic numbers or not, you couldn't get to those numbers without having to get through injuries first. So mm-hmm. you are way more beneficial to slow it down and go, dude, what if you air squatted really fucking well? What if you did a push up with no pain ever and it didn't take you five minutes to warm up into a push up? Mm-hmm. And so now I'm at this crossroads where I'm like, you need to just stop following programming and you need to get into yeah. a move, like as you would call it, the movement pattern mm-hmm. and understand what's going on psychologically what's going on inflammatory uh, around the body, get your mm-hmm. diet together a little bit better and start to understand these things. So it's, it, I mean, uh, whether you believe in serendipitous mm-hmm. or not, it's, it's, of it's course. here. And I'm like, I need to fix this thing because yeah. these have been issues for over a decade that continually rear their heads. And they just look a tiny different every time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You like, and, they're not getting and, fixed. And what you're, what you're explaining right now is this need to just explore movement, right? We get so ingrained in these patterns that we don't take the time to actually ex- expose our body and experience what it can do. So we have these essentially these boundaries that we create for ourselves, which are the, the limits of our stability, the limits of our range of motion. Like we can only do one thing this way. We can only squat this way. We can only hinge and pull this way. We can only press overhead this way. We can't use a barbell anymore, but I use dumbbells. That's okay. I'm still pressing. Yet we don't take a step back and say, hey, let's go. Let's, let's explore. Like let's get outside of our comfort bubble. And start to explore what I call these dark zones, these areas we don't get into very often. And that's what a lot of this is about from like a, like a rehab standpoint is let's just take you into positions that you're not comfortable going into and make you go into them frequently. Because if they don't hurt, let's do them frequently and it's going to be okay. Because now you're going to expose your, your body to new movement patterns. Your brain is going to be like, oh, we got to build new neural network. We have this more capacity now to handle and do whatever we want to do. And guess what happens? it starts to open up these ranges of motion because your mobility, your, your mobility, like how well you can move is dictated by how well you can control your center of mass to the extent of your stability. If we have a very small window, I'm making a very small tiny little circle here around my eye, and that is the extent of our boundaries, the only way we improve the mobility is now to make that circle larger. 
So expose your ranges of stability. Like take yourself in different patterns, make yourself fall over. That's where failure is beautiful. Because my coaching style, I give somebody point A, you give somebody point B. I don't tell you how to get from point A to point B. You got to figure that shit out on your own. And I'm going to let you mess up. I'm going to let you fail because I know you're not going to get hurt. And yeah, I want to develop this trust where I know like, hey, we're not using a lot of load here or anything, right? So now you're developing these neural networks and your brain is figuring out how to move its body. So that anytime that you get in stuck into a situation of a quote unquote compromised movement pattern, your brain can figure out a way around it or through it. Well, it's, it's interesting too, because how much of it is the ego driving the leaderboard chasing? You're like, <laughs> Dude, who's, who's the last person that, that. Like, like how much, how much of the like conversation, like I've gotten to the point now where I'm old enough where people are like, well, how much do you squat? And I just want to return it. You're a fucking asshole. Like, yeah, I don't what do, you, do you play yeah. it? Do you, is there a reason for you to squat 400 pounds other than like, that's where you're overload, you're, you're progressed to mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. like, there's plenty of things that you do that look like shit that, yeah we should probably fix. I'm that person too, but I also am like, well, I'm not trying to follow it, but yeah, you are asshole. Like yeah, you're trying to put more is. weight on the bar. So you need to, like, to me, it's like, I need to, I, I say my balance of extremes is an extreme. So like uh-huh. I either eat all the carbs or eat zero carbs, you know, I'm like, <laughs> obviously it's yeah. not like the uh-huh. best balance, but it is a balance. Yeah. But now it's like, okay, you need to go back down to being an infant mm-hmm. and understand mm-hmm. how to crawl again and then get back to walking, and then come to the running as a cliche goes. But like, in all seriousness, that's what it is. Think about that from a a baby's perspective. Nobody teaches them how to do that shit. They figure it out on their own. They're discovering their own movement. Yeah. That's essentially all that we're doing here is like, okay, let's break you down. Let's just expose you to different things to do, and let your body start to figure it out. And all of a sudden you're going to be crawling and then walking and everything again. But that's interesting. You mentioned the body composition stuff because let, let's be honest, like everybody that works out and that trains hard or has some type of movement practice, it all comes down because they want to look better naked. I mean, let's play it simple. It's all aesthetics. Okay. Yeah. So the nutrition side of things is super important, but we've, for whatever reason, we've got it ingrained in our mind that we think that we need to push heavy weight and have high intensity to keep our body composition. I'm raising my hand right now because I was there too. And it wasn't until I, I took like a year and a half off and pushing any heavy weight and just focused on my movement patterns that I figured out that you could still lose body mass, like you know, fat mass, build muscle, as long as you are starting to stretch your body in new ways. Because neurologically, like with isometrics and eccentrics and all that stuff, you're now creating new movement patterns. And your brain has to now work harder, which means it has to burn more calories. So yes, you are still working really hard if you learn how to load your body. But here's my big thing. We all think of load and resistance in the form of dumbbells, kettlebells, barbells, that type of stuff, sandbags, whatever you want, any type of external load. Yet how many people really know how to control their joints well against the load that we experience every single day of gravity? Virtually nobody. It's still a load. (laughs) Or we say, I'm going to go out for a jog because that's going to be a deload that you run like shit and you don't know how to actually make contact with your foot to the ground. And now we're adding 10 times body weight and gravity into those joints. You can't figure out why your knees hurt, right? It's a huge disconnect. It's a huge disconnect. And that's why that we are building this, this course. Like I told you, this process of movement discovery um, with power athlete, because we're starting to use movement as a medium to create an environment for healing and enhancing athletic performance. All right, that's plant. That's like the philosophy behind this all. And what we're trying to do is actually teach 
people a process of thinking rather than a widget, right? Because how many courses do you go on the weekend, you're already implementing the strategy that you learned in the weekend on day one with every single one of your patients. You get there, right? Until people don't fit that mold, right? There's no algorithm to this. There's no X, Y, Z. There's no flow chart. There's no like set standard process to achieve the best results. Like from the standpoint of you can't have everybody out there doing, you know, band and mobility drills and you only got to coach this way. You can only teach a deadlift that way. That's not what it's about. It's like, are you using your brain to critically think and understand the movement that you're seeing in front of you? And then using that information, that data, which by the way, it's super qualitative in nature. You can't quantitate a lot of this using that information then to develop a unique program for the individual for that's in front of you. Plain and simple, right? It's about thinking, use your brain. <laughs> that's what this is all about. Mic drop there. Yeah, <laughs> um, very cool, dude. Um, I'll try, I'm going to wrap this up for us. I've, cool, I feel cool. like I've taken all, all day of yours. Um, oh, we can just a few things. I, dude, I'm, you have my mind spinning right now. Um, I I'm excited to see where this, this course goes. Cause, uh, mm -hmm obviously from like more of the practitioner coach side of things, like that's fascinating. It's an opportunity to learn um, more about how to coach. And that's mm -hmm. very synonymous with what power athlete stands for. Like we're not just teaching. Here's, here's material, learn it. It's right. right. How do we apply this to everyday life and, and implement. Mm -hmm. how do you become a better mm -hmm. coach, which is really the best thing about power athlete there. Like it, yes. it's not about the, you know, here's how you squat. Nah, no one gives a shit. I mean, it's much to be give a shit. Nobody gives a shit. We're not going to be great like, the same information. Right. Like how do we make people move and become better athletes or just better living in, in this earth? Um, so and from that, but like also I'm, I'm, I need to fix my body. So uh, <laughs> you might be hearing from me a different way. Uh, we, could, um, we could definitely work on that. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> 100% dude. Um, I guess part of me wants to know a little bit before we wrap this up, like where do you, what two things number one what yeah. do you feel like your biggest struggle as a pt is in terms of like mm. what you have to treat and then the second side of it is like what inspires you to continually grow or where do you get your inspiration from like what do you read what do you where do you get your information from to keep yeah. challenging yeah, yeah 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 uh, actually i i want to start with the uh i guess the, the more negative one with the struggle yeah and i think the struggle is it's coming from more of an energetic side of things right because for me, like I told you, I'm such a puzzle guy that I could work with any puzzle. That, that's really not a problem. You can come to anything that you, that you have going on. I don't care what age you are, what type of demographic you come from, like what any type of background, we could work through it for sure. I think it comes more so down from the fact of there are some people that you're going to come in contact with that don't want to provide an equal energetic exchange, right? So I learned from a mentor of mine a long, long time ago that you can't want it more than the client. So if you start wanting it more than the client, the client's not willing to put in the effort or do what's necessary to help themselves, it's going to be a lose-lose situation because that energetic exchange is disproportionate in nature. So I think that's, that's the biggest struggle is feeling like you, because you have the tools, the power to help everybody, but you can't always help everyone either. And, it, and that's a really hard thing to real, come to realize, especially from somebody in a profession like ours, like rehab or strength conditioning, you want to help everybody improve in some way. And sometimes they're just not in the right space and the right mindset to handle it right now. And that's okay. And that is okay. And they will come around at some point, but you, you can't force it. Sure. Yeah. yeah. I think we've all been there for sure. I, we're, we've always been on the other side too. We don't give the mm -hmm. same energy back, you know? Exactly. exactly. Interesting. 
And then as yeah. far as, uh, what was the second question about learning? Right? Yeah, it's about like what inspires you? Like we're, you know, like I might come to your your page to learn some stuff or be like, ah, what, what, what's Matt up to today? And I'm like, oh, he's drinking a yin. Like I'll drink one too. Uh, you know? But like who, who are the people you really look to yeah. to kind of direct some of your, your education or just mm-hmm. what what's next for you, you know? Yeah, so I, I consider myself a connector. Right. And, and what I mean by that is, yes, I still look at uh, different practitioners within the rehabilitation space and everything, but I go outside of that. I go outside of it into the realms of strength conditioning, into psychology, into the spiritual communities. Um, I mean, even in, in, as, as far as things of like engineering and physics and all that, I try to learn from all these other people that are way outside my scope because I start to, and this is kind of how I, I do it when I read books is I'll have the book. I love hard copy books. I love to jot down notes and everything is I'm making connections in my mind based on my knowledge already with presented with this new information. And that's how I grow and evolve. So we should always be continual learners. Like we should never stay stagnant, but if we stay within that same bubble, like it's, if you're in a comfort bubble, the same thing with movement, the same thing with learning and like exposing yourself to places where you're not the smartest person in the room or with, like books that you have no idea what they're going to be about and how they're going to relate to you, but you're going to give it a shot anyway. And it's, it's with, with those experiences, you start to develop these brand new connections that set you apart. And that, that's kind of where I'm going with all this is like, I'm never going to stop learning the day that I stop learning is the day that I'm going to hang it up because I don't want to be doing the same thing I'm doing today. Like this conversation that we're having, if my information hasn't changed next year, I'm doing something wrong. Right. There's going to be the same foundational principles I'm always going to you know, abide by, sure. live by, but the information, the way it's presented and delivered is probably going to change. Yeah, that's, that's cool. Dude. It's uh, you're saying that about like the books and I, I tend to read, I'm as much as I love like the strength conditioning, the movement side of things. And I do, I always relate back to the psychology of things. And yeah, that's why I'm yeah. starting to like, all right, maybe I'm going to make my shift into the more of the performance psych and, and yeah. follow that a little bit. But I keep reading like similar genres of books but mm-hmm. also you said something that made me just really trigger into myself going like you just read books to get the books done so you can say you've read the book versus exactly. like nobody's even paying attention what's this competition and the ego mm-hmm. going on with there like i gotta have this done by this time like that's a lack mindset there's yeah. there's a competition in there that doesn't absolutely have to be there at all uh and so now you're kind of take my head mind down another rabbit hole there of like all right dude slow down it's okay to slow down it is okay to slow down. And it's also like these conversations that we're having right now as well is learning from each other. Like let's have more of these conversations. Um, but you, you mentioned the books and I, there's actually a really good book that I'm almost finished with right now that I think that you're really going to enjoy. It's called Applied Empathy and it's by Michael Ventura. And he's not a psychologist. He is a business owner. Um, huh. But he takes it from a very, very interesting perspective of like how you use empathy um, in business and in life to like motivate people and within leadership and within business. So highly cool. recommend. Add that to the list, man. That's, that's sweet. For sure. Um, I can give you my whole, my whole uh, yeah. book list of recommendations too, for sure. It's uh, dude, I'm, I'm into it. I'm trying to create a little bit better reading habit uh, mm-hmm. just to obviously try and educate, but similar to what I just, well, exactly what I just yeah. said. I'm like, I just read it to get it done and I don't retain the stuff. That's, yeah. that's been an issue all my life. So like, I'm trying to, mm-hmm get into like how do you get your mind to quiet down and, and right, learn right, right. what you're doing like where's your mind at and you know meditation comes in so uh we definitely have a follow-up podcast because i want to pick it up the mind the mindset aspect of this and mm-hmm. 
hopefully the next follow-up conversation, that course will be either produced or in production, or we'll be able to send people a little bit differently. Um, so I have one last question before you, yeah. after we get this out of the way, like if, if you know, anyone's still with us, um, and probably my mom and my aunt are still listening. Um, where, uh, where can we find you and, and what's the best place to contact you? All these things, what do you offer? Yep. Anything you want to get yep. out there? So uh, like you mentioned, there's a lot that's kind of in production right now, like a lot of rebranding, a lot of building of websites and everything. So at, probably when this goes out, the website will probably be done, but it will be rootedinmovement.com. So R-O-O-T-E-D in and then capital M-V-M-N-T. So that's the acronym. And then also my Instagram handle, Rooted in Movement, is a very, very easy place to find me. I'm pretty active on that and, and respond pretty quickly. Good deal. Yeah, I'll make sure everything's tagged in that too. Um, sure, of course. We'll have, we'll have it on the little Potomatic website yeah. and I'll have it on Instagram too when it comes out. So going through, going through a little bit of another rebrand, have a logo being made and, and some That's music cool. being put in. So yeah, it's uh, trying to make it a little bit more into what I want it to be. So yeah, yeah. Um, I'm super excited. Dude, this has been so much fun. My last question is the same question I ask everybody in some sense. Uh, mm. For you, what does it really mean to to live a life well done or anything along those lines? Mm-hmm. That's actually, that's a great question. And uh, I think it just comes down to showing gratitude and staying present, right? So being able to appreciate your body kind of from a movement standpoint, physicality, since that's, that's kind of my thing and, and my niche is from movement is, you know, to kind of appreciate your body and start to see things in a different light and recognize that there are things that you, that you can do to help yourself really move through any situation. That's so cool. Awesome, dude. Well, thank you so much for your time. Uh, I could, I do, I feel like we could have talked for four or five more hours on that stuff, uh, but hopefully there's another follow-up and hopefully we'll get a collective here soon that we can, uh, uh, kind of discuss some stuff and maybe the next time we're down in Austin. We'll just do a live yeah. with a couple of people. Let's That'd be it. cool as hell. Let's do it. Um, but uh, man, honestly, I think, thank you for your time. I'm, I'm, I love following what you do. Keep putting it out there. And uh, I look forward to hopefully talking again soon. Yeah. Thank you so much. Awesome. Dude. I'll talk to you soon. Take care.